Welcome to the Roadrunner Exchange, a podcast featuring candid conversations about leadership, decision-making, and higher education with Dr. Janine Davidson, President of Metropolitan State University of Denver. I am your host, Dr. Samuel J., Associate Professor of Communication Studies and Presidential Faculty Fellow here at MSU Denver. On this week's show, I sat down with our new provost, Dr. Alfred Tatum. We talked a lot about what got him to MSU Denver, but we also talked a lot about life and his passion for education. It was a really, really fun interview. Uh, Dr. Tatum is a fantastic person, great addition to the university, and I think that that comes out pretty clearly in this interview. So hope you'll enjoy it, and as always, share with your, your friends here on campus, and as always, thanks for listening. Right, uh, Dr. Alfred Tatum, uh, joining the show today, joining the Road Ru- Roadrunner Exchange. We're mixing it up. I wanted to kind of get an opportunity to get to know you a little bit and let uh, our faculty and our staff and the students that listen to this get to know you as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the questions that I came up with are uh, are not your traditional podcast questions, um, but I think we'll have some fun. But have you, I got to ask you. Um, I've seen him. I've seen your office at home. What podcasts have you done before? Because you've got quite the setup. Yeah, my podcast focuses on the literacy development and black boys. Okay. And so anytime there is a national story, mm-hmm. uh, I try to connect it with uh, what implications this means for sharing text with these young boys. Okay. So when, when you, for example, when we had the presidential election mm-hmm. and the outcome, my podcast became the literacy development of black boys and electoral politics. Wow. Uh, so I continue to move in that uh, particular uh, direction to get folks excited about the broader depth and breadth of what it means to advance literacy development in yeah. the nation and how it intersects with all disciplines. Okay, so wait, we got to jump into it. we got to go deeper into this. First off, what's the name of it? Uh, Light It Up. Light It Up. Light It Up with Alfred Tatum. So who are your oh, guests? I'm sorry, Let's Get Lit. Le- oh, okay. That's, that's all right. That's catchier. I like that. Yeah, and, and lit is just short for uh, literacy. So okay. Let's Get Lit with okay. Alfred Tatum. I like it, though. Mm-hmm. Did you come up with that? Uh, I did. So you got a little marketing background, maybe, right? A little, some skills. A little, little marketing <laughs> background. I married someone who has a bachelor's degree in marketing and, and communication. Okay. And so, you know, when someone goes through a master's program, mm-hmm. the family supports. So I think I have a master's degree in marketing and communication. <laughs> and doing that. I can't use it for anything, but uh, hey, I'll claim credit for it. You're doing a great job. Okay, so, so who, are, who are the guests that you get on the show then? Well, I start with uh, SoundCloud. Okay. So uh, it's more of a monologue uh-huh. uh, than a podcast. Okay. Uh, and I frame it, uh, these are three-minute conversations, so mm-hmm. I scribble up two pages, yeah. uh, start with a powerful intro, give some examples, and then an outro. That's uh, how often they come out? Uh, I haven't done it since I've been here, okay. but I was doing them weekly uh, over the summer. Let's get you back on it. Let's get you, um, I'll tell you the story of how I came across this podcast equipment someday. You can probably go through email exchanges and figure that out for yourself. But uh, um, All right, first question. It, well, other than that. If you could do nothing but read, write, think, and research, what idea or theory or author or scholar would gird that creativity for the rest of your life? Wow, that's tough because I've been reading five pounds of books per month. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But I'll tell you there are two authors, Mm -hmm. uh, one that I read uh, regularly. So there's this uh, book, Strength to Love by Dr. King. Okay. And it's about 
uh, tenderheartedness and tough-mindedness. Uh, so I, I've been a Kingian follower for a long time. Mm -hmm. This is why when I was an undergrad, a uh, high school student, the only school I applied to was Morehouse College. Okay. I was absolutely committed to going to Morehouse because of Dr. King. But also I pay attention to the works of uh, James Baldwin mm -hmm. because he writes across uh, all of the disciplines, mm -hmm. you know, uh, essays, uh, thought pieces, and I think those serve as uh, textual models mm -hmm. uh, for writing, uh, also for thinking, but also for thinking broadly. I'll tell you why I chose both of those authors. Um, and I can probably list 100 others. Yeah. But I like writers who serve as witnesses okay. for what's going on in society. And James Baldwin and Dr. King were grand witnesses. Mm -hmm. And all of their writings stem from what they observed, what they saw, what they wanted to impact. What was the moment in, for, for Baldwin in particular as you were developing and growing as a, as a young man? What was the moment like that it just clicked with his work? His book was uh, one of his favorite texts that I like. It's called The Price of the Ticket. Okay. And I said, what do you mean by the price of the ticket? Mm -hmm. And what that, and I asked that question based on that title. And he was saying, you know, to move through society, you have to pay a price. Uh, sometimes it can be uh, a heavy price based on cultural uh, sexuality. Uh, James Baldwin was concerned with his own sexuality uh, mm -hmm. growing up as a, as a young man. And I thought it was just profound that he traveled around the world to figure out what is the price of the ticket. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing about writing in Baldwin's case, <clears throat> It not just leads to fanfare, but it opens himself up for a wide range of criticism. Yeah. And so every time he scribbled an essay, it led to some controversy that led to more essays. And so this goes back to my earlier point. How do you constantly be in conversation with the nation, with the world, mm -hmm. with the so uh, society writ large? Now, we have other people who do that in science. I just happen to name two uh, uh, social uh, sciences. This is going to be a pointed question. Feel free to answer it or not. But do you see parallels in that experience that, that Baldwin wrote about and your own in the sense of, of you know, being a man of color? And the ticket is, I, I guess, academic privilege is still not the same academic privilege for everybody is my point. Did, did that resonate with you? Yeah, if you, you know, travel throughout the nation, and I was born in um, uh, Chicago in an urban area, and they're just prices that you have to pay as you uh, move toward uh, success. Mm -hmm. um, so the short answer is yes. But what I also found out is, as you pay this heavy price, whether it's racialized or economic status, uh, there's something gorgeous about society that you have these powerful buffers. And so I think that makes the distinction between those who achieve some modicum of success, depending on however you define that. Uh, so yes, I, I had to uh, pay a price, but there were buffers. Uh, and one of the things that I often say, and I had to learn through my own experience, you should never become paralyzed because of difficulties that are in front of you. Mm -hmm. You have to find a way to negotiate uh, and navigate 
but try to do it with a supreme level of confidence. Uh, and just keep your eye on the prize for that. So that was a long way of saying, yes, the price of the ticket I experienced, but I also experienced some powerful buffers. I, I, I don't like doing the talking on this. I like doing the listening, so I appreciate the long answers. You're sure. fine. Like, I totally get it. What was your dissertation about? Um, it folks focused on advancing the literacy development of African-American children in the lowest performing schools. Okay. Uh, so in Chicago at the time, we had uh, schools would be put on probation. And so I conducted research in the lowest performing school in Chicago at that time that was on probation for five years. My goal was to go in there to, it was a case study, uh, a year-long 19-month uh, case study. Uh, and it had to be that long because I was trying to transform educational practices in reading classrooms. Um, but with the support that I provided the school, they were removed from probation status for the first time uh, in a five-year period because we can re uh, we reconceptualize uh, what does it mean to advance literacy development in the lowest performing schools despite poverty, despite uh, parenting. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a strong focus on uh, pedagogy. And so there was a, um, an extreme refusal to allow those teachers doing this case study to fail these seventh and eighth grade uh, students. Uh, rewardingly, because we have social media now, uh, I received uh, a LinkedIn invitation yeah. about two days ago, uh, Jay, uh, Sam Jay. <laughs> You're good. Uh, <clears throat> uh, two days ago from a student, and I looked at her tagline, she's now a middle school uh, science teacher in Milwaukee. Oh, Some of my students have gone on to earn their PhD, yeah. and, and so I get back. But this student in particular was part of that case study. And for her to send that email, it, it was just a, a treat for me to know that she was a middle school yeah. uh, a science uh, teacher uh, in Milwaukee. I, 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 I just love that. I mean, that makes you smile, for yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. When you were working with those 7th, 8th grade teachers in those case studies, did you feel like, did you get a sense that the passion was already there? Or was the passion, or, and you kind of had to channel it, or they needed to channel it? Or was it something that they had to be motivated to, to express? The love was there. Okay. Um, but you can love students to a fault. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, you have this ethic of caring, and you, you don't want to crush the souls of young people. And so what eventually begins to happen, we begin to make instruction easier. Uh, we have our kids experience less text, experience less mathematics. And what we, we become inadvertent accomplice to failure. So they were loving students toward defeat. That makes sense. Which, which is extremely uh, problematic uh, for me so how do you then capitalize on that love? Because you can't teach reading with love. You have to know how to teach reading. Yeah, you can't teach yeah. writing with love alone. You don't know how to uh, teach writing. Uh, you can't even teach reading and writing with good intentions. You have to know how to teach reading and writing. And so uh, it was 
And I remember their names, uh, Mrs. Garden, because we always had meetings in Olive Garden, <laughs> and Mr. Tuscany, because there was this Italian restaurant in Chicago. Okay. That's how I named my uh, research okay. uh, participants. <clears throat> so we had a lot of eating and conversations like this. Okay. But once that love was coupled with a high degree of competence mm -hmm. of what it means to advance literacy instruction, that led to the exponential uh, growth. And then also it required a different ethos of what it means to begin to address things like, uh, as we talk about the, we talk about the equity gap now, but uh, the reading achievement gap. And I said, we just have to catch the students up with the text mm -hmm. and make the text harder and harder and catch them up with the text. Don't worry about what's external. And when we did that, uh, we just began to uh, take off. Did you have to cultivate the love of reading in these students, or was it that the students now, that love was there and you had to, f I'm, I guess what I'm trying to understand, that love was there and you just had to match them with the text that challenged them while also channeling that love? Yeah, it's, it's both. Text is, te text is a powerful, powerful uh, tool yeah. if we mediate it uh, the right way. Okay. Uh, for some students who uh, had strong reading and writing skills, it was about the text only. Okay. Lighting okay. their pathways. Uh, I coined something called textual lineages. Mm -hmm. We all have them. Uh, so I was trying to build that lineage. But for students who struggled uh, with reading and writing by the time they entered middle school, we also had to uh, couple it with strong instructional uh, reading mm -hmm. uh, strategies and skill uh, development. And so my mantra was powerful instruction and powerful text leads to powerful results. I like that. That's, that, that resonates, especially as I'm trying to get my eight-year-old to read every night. So um, she can read just fine. It's finding this text, the challenger, for sure. Pillow pages. Pillow pages? What's that? Um, <laughs> write this down. When my sons were young, uh, before I, I know they were going to put their head on a pillow at night, so I would put one page of text in front of them. Yeah. I would highlight just kernels of wisdom. Okay. And in the morning, we would talk about kernel wisdoms, or at night, we would talk about kernels of wisdom. And sometimes it's just about frog eggs, nothing really deep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But they were reading across all of the disciplines, mm -hmm. which was a very powerful thing. And it was uh, easy for me to do it. It's easy for you as a parent. Uh, you just have to Google one page of text across any discipline, highlight a few lines, yeah. put it on the page, and then have a conversation about it. And they'll tell you if they're interested or not, and then you say, Wait a minute, I'll get you more information about this particular uh, topic. I love that. Okay, parenting lessons from Dr. Tatum. I dig that. that that's really good. Uh, it, within your, your academic experience, uh, who was the person or the, the mentor that had the, the biggest effect on you? Oh, I, I had uh, uh, so many. Um, I'll just talk about one in higher ed because mm -hmm. we're in higher ed uh, context here. Uh, I was a sophomore or junior in college. And this goes back to the, the focus on a reading. As a student teacher, I was observing what was going on in uh, the school district, and I wanted to change the entire curriculum mm -hmm. as a student teacher. Mm -hmm. And the social studies methods professor, Gloria Alter, I remember her name, <laughs> she uh, gave me $500 to conduct my own research, and she planned a meeting 
for a high school junior to meet with the school board. And at the time, uh, I was arguing for we need to have culturally responsive pedagogy in the district because I saw the demographics changing. Mm -hmm. And I said, we're not going to listen to this guy. But that experience was very profound and very powerful because at that point, uh, education wasn't, for me, alone. It was something that allowed me to put my body in front of my work in order to lead to some system change. Mm -hmm. And that was a profound uh, experience. I was summarily rejected by the school board. <laughs> Who's this 20-year-old coming in uh -huh. suggesting this? Uh, Ten years later, uh, they called me back as a consultant to help them plan culturally responsive The same school board? The same, uh, what, the same school district. School district, okay, okay. The board had changed at the time. But? But then they wanted me to uh, audit and lead them in a the direction. I wouldn't say I told you so. Um, you can. I mean, but, that's but, pretty wild. But I was more humble uh, with it. And um, it, at that point, it wasn't really about me and my experience. It was, well, how can we support the young people in this district? So Gloria Alton was a, had a profound, profound impact on my development as an educator. That's, that's cool. Uh, I didn't write this down, but I want to ask you, just being a Midwesterner myself, um, the city of Chicago and the school district of Chicago gets a lot of negative coverage across the country. What's something that the United States doesn't understand about the Chicago school district that we should? I don't know if I have the answer to that uh, question. But I know if I think broadly about urban school districts, um, our national policies authorize failure and underperformance. And what I mean by that, our metric of success in this nation is basic and proficient reading, is basic and proficient mathematics. So when school districts are held accountable, they're held accountable to achieve basic and proficient standards. As a nation, we've been hoodwinked. We're no longer focusing on advanced uh, literacy, mathematics, or science as a nation because we have assessed that it is too difficult to achieve uh, in a diverse school district and in a diverse society. And that does harm to all, uh, to all of us. Damn. That's, that's some heavy stuff there. Whew. Okay. Okay. Um, hey, you're pretty good at this. Uh, no, that's, no, you're really good at this. You've done this before. This is, uh, this is powerful. Um, all right, let's, let's talk leadership. What's the most undervalued characteristic of a leader? Undervalued. Silence. That's good. That's good. I, I think uh, sometimes leaders are asked a lot of questions. And I think new leaders are compelled to have their voice part of every conversation. Mm -hmm. But there's power in silence mm -hmm. uh, because it leads to contemplation on the questioner. If you jump in too soon, uh, you can steer the conversation in a direction that it was not even uh, intended. And oftentimes, leaders can miss the mark 
the first time they hear a question. Mm -hmm. So over the years, someone say, is this a powerful trait? Over the years, I have learned how to become more silent in the room, but my mind is always running Mm -hmm. 100 miles per hour. Yeah. Um, So a silence. I mean, in line with that, I think asking a good question is an art form that we don't appreciate. Mm-hmm. I agree, yeah, yeah. A lot of people just like to ask questions because they like to hear themselves talk. And you're an academic. You've, you, how many conference presentations have you given where you, that person in the back wants to ask you a question about something that they know you have no background in, mm-hmm. but they know if they can get you to answer, you're going to sound, they're going to sound smarter than you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, uh, it, that's across industries, but academia especially. But, um, what's the most overvalued? The most overvalued, would you say characteristic? Of a, of a leader, yeah. Most overvalued. Uh-huh. Think about every shitty pop leadership book you've read. <laughs> Start there. Uh, I think the most, I never really thought about this question. I, I, I think, um, I'm only going to talk about new leaders at this point. Do it. I, I think the most overvalued uh, characteristic is uh, feeling the need uh, to be in control or always having the answer. How does that, how does that play out in relationships then? Give me, like, give me some examples of what you're thinking. Like, if you always have a concern about control and dictating the conversation, What's that look like when you're dealing with your, the folks who, who report to you? Stymieing creativity, I mean. Here's an example. I want to put this in a broader universal context. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, we really don't control anything. I mean, there are so many variables, factors, influences that could interrupt, disrupt, transform, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. So in the, how it plays out in, in the day-to-day uh, reality. Oh, and, and I think the over, uh, another over, most overrated is the notion of uh, time. Uh, we put markers on our leadership because we have to accomplish something. We're evaluated certain periods of time. So... When I've worked with uh, people in, um, who were reporting to me, I knew in my gut at times that, and I didn't believe the direction they, they were proposing. Mm-hmm. I, I could sort of, because I had a broader view, I could see the fault lines in how they were advancing this. But my jo- uh, job is not to be in control if I'm interested in nurturing the next generation of leaders, I have to be willing to take that hit. And being willing to support that next leader, even if the results are disastrous. Because ultimately, I'm responsible, because I sort of co-signed and gave that. And 
that's, that's hard for a leader to do sometimes. Uh, there were times when they came back to bite me, but I never attributed uh, the failure to the person that I authorized because it was just part of how do you nurture that uh, uh, development. And sometimes it goes against your principles and your ideology. It's nothing, nothing uh, unethical. You just wouldn't approach it in similar ways. But if I felt the need to be in control, I'm going to hold this person accountable if it fails, then people begin to look at leaders as if they have this God complex. They have the answers, and they're not. It's, it's a disservice to the next generation of leaders uh, because they always, I, I say this as an eighth grade teacher um, and as, um, as a professor. I, I said, before students read any text that you put in front of them, they're reading, reading your human text first. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with leadership. People see every move that a leader makes, and it signals to them if they should move forward, if they should uh, step back. So that's what I mean by control. If you think about the field of metaphysics, we don't control anything. What does it take for a leader to trust that failure for somebody that they're leading is going to actually end up nurturing and helping their growth versus ruining a whole team, stymieing their development? Like, how do you trust, how do you come to trust failure? Shakespeare. <laughs> explain. Like, you got to explain. I grew up in Iowa. There wasn't a lot of Shakespeare being read. We're all actors on the stage. Yeah. Uh, we're all actors in the play. Yeah. And despite your greatness as a leader or a failure, a failure there's always going to be the next scene. Mm. So if you realize that, most leaders are succeeding others. Mm -hmm. And they were preceded by Mm -hmm. So Shakespeare. Damn. That's so good. This is, this is a good conversation. This has been a while um, in terms of, you know, uh, uh, going deep on stuff, not talking about, you know, policy-related stuff. This is good. Um, <clears throat> put, on the provost, put on the provost hat for me for a second. Um, what, are, what are your strategic initiatives that are uh, top of mind right now when it comes to the academic side of things at MSU Denver? There, there, there are really three. I'm going to put it under this umbrella, and this is probably the reason why I uh, came to MSU uh, Denver. You know, my, my goal um, um, is to help anyone I support achieve their grandest aspirations. So having said that, um, there are four major things. One, I'm really interested in faculty well-being and faculty compensation. Mm -hmm. well, the second thing is I think we have an awesome, awesome potential to develop geographically responsible graduate programs. Okay. How do we think about advancing our graduate signature? Uh, the third one, if we're going to be altruistic with what happens here, 
we have to expand our reach. Uh, one of the ways that we expand our reach, uh, teaching excellence, competence, we have to think about online development. Yeah. Uh, I think that's going to be uh, really uh, critical uh, for us uh, moving forward. And the other, as a teaching institution, how do we think about the roles of research? Now, we could graduate, and this week was allowing me to be a witness that we can graduate excellent students. But students are being taught based on the research of other people. Right. Inform their textbooks, their courses, their instructors. How do we also nurture intellects that think about research as part of their uh, responsibility? Um, let me ask you, let me stop you there. If, I like that last initiative. Is there something about harnessing passion that's involved there? Because what I'm thinking is, are you a, you become a more passionate educator when you're talking about the thing that you love to research? Is that, you think that's BS? Or is there something there? Um, it can either be passion or protection. Oh, yeah, good point. Research is a form of protection, if you ask me. If, yeah. I mean, you, 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 you have to be passionate about it. Yeah. So I'll give an example of... Um, the water crisis. Okay. Um, so let's say we produce students in biology or who studies the water and whatever uh, they, they may study. But if we have a water crisis in Denver that's adversely impacting the Latino community, I, I think someone within the, in that community should not have to rely on the research of others to protect their own welfare. Mm -hmm. So how do you think about conducting uh, research? Because you may find out that other groups of people don't love you as much as you love yourself. So don't be dependent on the research or scholarship of others. You generate that. Uh, you generate it with a deep cultural sensitivity or economic sensitivity or community sensitivity, mm -hmm. because you may ask very different uh, questions. Let's go back to Chicago, for example. Black women in Chicago uh, had the largest number of um, 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 breast removal okay. uh, during cancer, because they didn't believe the black community would take care of themselves. So they said, we're just going to cut off their breasts. Well, just imagine if these were black women researchers thinking about breast cancer, the outcome would have been entirely different. Right. And so we read about this 10 years later uh, in books, and it's a way, lo and behold. But if we're not nurturing the a generation of scientists early on because they're in some type of school system, we look at them a certain type of way, uh, it's, it's, it's a disservice. So communities have to conduct both research in the social sciences and the hard sciences. And so when people talk about social justice, I said, let's also talk about scientific justice. Mm -hmm. And you can become smart about it, but you can also nurture new knowledge about it. And that means you may be conducting research. There's something kind of safe, like a, 
self-preservation in publishing in a journal and knowing that when you teach it to your undergrad, that you, when you teach to undergrads, they're never going to read it, like, uh, or, or not bringing it up in a graduate class, right? Keeping it away from your students. And I understand what you're saying about protection. It's, it's safe. You're safe. Like, you spent six months to a year writing some journal article, and then you've got a really savvy freshman who's going to pick it apart. Mm -hmm. that, that hurts the confidence, right? That hurts the ego just a little bit. It could, or it could lead to the next writing. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I mean, there's plenty of good. There's plenty of good, I yeah. guess, I'm thinking selfishly there. That, that becomes your co-author. <laughs> That's so true. Um, one last question I wanted to ask you. Uh, you're a baseball guy. I'm a baseball guy. we got to go to some Rockies games. They should be free relatively soon, as terrible as they are. Who's your favorite ball player ever? Favorite ball player ever? I uh, grew up really, I have two, uh, Joe Morgan, Okay. I was a second baseman, Cincinnati Reds, yep, uh, yep, yep. Red Machine, and I loved uh, Willie Randolph, second baseman for the uh, New York uh, Yankees, and so th that was sort of my guy post uh, mm -hmm. uh, growing up, and uh, yeah, Joe Morgan, Willie Randolph. That's funny, mine would have been, it is, Frank Thomas, because I was a chubby middle school, high school kid, and I played first base. And the big hurt was just, mm. Griffey didn't resonate. You know, those, that class of, right. of players didn't right. resonate. Right. McGuire didn't look real to begin with. <laughs> so, um, well, Dr. Tatum, if you've got any closing comments, go for it. But I just want to thank you. That was, uh, was a blast. Uh, no comments? Okay. I'm going to borrow, lean into my, the silence that I talked about earlier okay. in this conversation. I dig it. Thank you, Dr. Tatum. Thank you. Appreciate it. Of course. Yep. Yeah.